Cool. So Anand, I'm super excited to have you here on the podcast. Why don't you give folks just a little bit of an explainer on you, give like one minute of background and then like a little bit about uh, TV Insights as well. Yeah, sure thing. Thanks, Andy. Um, so yeah, Anand Sanwal, CEO, co-founder of CB Insights. I uh, worked in my prior life in venture and M&A and, uh, you know, wanted to always do my own thing and, and, uh, and thought there had to be a better way uh, when it came to doing my job and so left uh, American Express where I was doing venture and M&A to start CB Insights many years ago now. Um, and uh, yeah, initially, like the, the goal was to build uh, a platform to help, uh, you know, me in my old life kind of do my job better. So we were tracking the private markets, technology companies, trying to understand what was happening from a financing and M&A perspective. And then over time, uh, that's expanded. And I'm happy to kind of walk you through what that looks like. Uh, but let me I'll stop there and, and tell me, uh, tell me what you want to where you want to go. Yeah, for sure. So um, I think I started learning more about CB Insights, like many other people, probably from your newsletter, which you've said, I think I heard in a podcast that you recorded a year ago, you have about 850,000 subscribers. So it's probably more at this point, but it's a massive list. Obviously, yeah. that means that the content piece of, um, of your acquisition works really well. Um, I'm curious, and there's a, actually, so you have that piece, but then Internally, I think there's another thing to mention too that I've heard you mention on other podcasts as well, which is almost like the the human intervention piece of how you put together and curate data for other companies. Because primarily, you know, you're a data company at CB Insights, and so I have a couple of questions I want to touch on for the content side of things and for the human intervention piece. Sure. So, number one for content, um, aside from like consistency, right? Because you've been doing this for a really long time. What would you say was the biggest piece in helping you to grow to that 850,000 subscribers mark? Yeah, I think it's two things. So one, we have access to information, both quantitative and qualitative, that's not available elsewhere. So there's sort of a uniqueness to what we can bring, whether that's in the newsletter or to our customers behind the paywall. Um, so that was one. Um, and, we, you know, I'll walk you through kind of what those those tributaries of, of sort of information look like. Uh, and then a second thing I would say is just tone, right? So we're at our foundations, a B2B product, um, but our tone and tenor and uh, attitude, I guess, in the newsletter and other places is, is a little atypical for B2B. Um, and so I think people have like that they've gravitated towards it. I think it, it feels more personal. It feels more human. Um, and we've tried to kind of maintain that, you know, the way I think about it is, you know, if I was writing the newsletter for a friend, um, you know, what would, who cared about what was going on in technology or in markets, what would that look like? And yeah, I think that's worked. Um, you know, we, we candidly, we benefit from the fact that most B2B companies are terrible at kind of content. Um, and so, uh, to some degree, there's a really low bar, which is which is nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can attest to that. I find that I open up your email every single edition that you send out. I love the tone of it. Very easy to understand, even like for topics that I'm not even fully like invested in. You yeah. know, I'm primarily invested in like anytime you mention like competitive landscapes or stuff like that. Um, but even outside of that, you provide really great research and also succinct. So I don't feel like I'm wasting like a half hour you know, like just going on like a, a binge of a specific niche category that I really don't have any like interest in. 
And so I love that piece of your newsletter specifically. When it comes to your actual product, the thing that really stuck out to me that I know you've shared in other podcasts, which also, by the way, like I'm going to start mentioning some other topics from your other podcast interviews. And if anybody's listening to this and you want to learn a little bit more, just kind of like the foundational stuff of Anand, you can do that on some of the other podcasts. I, I got introduced to you through uh, like My First Million yeah. and uh, How to Wed. And so I'm going to ask a couple of deeper questions. And so if people want, you know, kind of like a, a more starter level, go check out those and then come back here. So in either case, when it comes to CV insights, I heard that you mentioned human intervention as kind of this, this other moat that you built as a differentiator from other data companies. And it really reminded me of something that we felt at Zoom Info. I don't think that you consider Zoom Info really a competitor, but another data company. Zoom Info also leverages human in the loop type of technology. They have a research team and they started with that research team and it was really able to help them kind of scale. And I remember you mentioning that human intervention piece is really hard. And that's a big piece of scaling a company is being able to like have that high tolerance for pain. Henry Schuck, the CEO and founder of of Zoom Info has said similar things. Hey, if there's a way to go about this without that human intervention, I would totally be investing in it. It's hard, but it makes the product that much better and that much different. Now, my question to you is there's a ton of technological advances that I feel like are happening, especially within the past couple of years that are potentially replacing humans, right? Like, I mean, like that's a part of the conversation of AI. So in either case, how much do you think that human intervention piece is going to continue as a differentiator? Do you think it's going to continue or do you think that like there's going to be some kind of like technological advance that, that might threaten that? You know, I think we have, we have humans in the loop because our customers expect a quality of information in our product that, and, you know, we're selling at a price point that having humans do things that humans are uniquely capable of doing in terms of just judging the veracity and, and um, integrity of information is important. Um, you know, I think we think of generative AI, if that's what you're kind of alluding to, as pretty transformative for our business, right? And mostly because I think of generative AI as sort of this compression machine, right? It, it is able to take a lot of information and compress it down into sort of the elements that matter and, and uh you know, uh, convey that to customers. And so for us, like we've really leaned into sort of proprietary information there, right? So we get our data in three ways. We have kind of this machine intelligence, machine learning driven way where we're extracting data from uh, about companies and about markets from sort of unstructured documents. So think like websites, regulatory docs, press releases, et cetera. There, I think generative AI can be transformative in terms of our efficiency, which I think you alluded to. Right. The other two sources of our data are directly from companies. And so this is companies, technology companies will conduct these things called analyst briefings with us, where their aim is to share more about their products, why they're distinctive, why they're better than their competitors, et cetera. And they share a bunch of data that you know we internally call off the grid, meaning like there's no machine learning you could apply to, you know, any sort of information source because it doesn't exist out in the in the public, right? And so now we have this proprietary data set around pricing, around revenue, around reference customers, uh, competitive differentiators, et cetera. Um, and then the third is we get 
now uh, the kind of, we call it the voice of the customer. We interview buyers of software um, and that was our newest product called Yardstick. And so there we spend, let's call it, you know, 15 to 30 minutes with a software buyer trying to understand, you know, uh, their perceptions of what drove their evaluation of their cease, their customer satisfaction, et cetera, with a software buyer. And so those last two data sets in particular are really, they're unavailable elsewhere. So we actually think we're really well poised for this sort of generative AI age in that um, we have proprietary data that generative AI can do really magical things with, but it's just information you can't get anywhere else. And so we're really leaning into the, into that sort of, you know, proprietary qualitative and quantitative information uh, increasingly uh, sort of just given what's going on in the, in the sort of broader technology landscape right now. Mm, yeah, that totally makes sense. At, with respect to Yardstick, so let's let's pivot over there really quick. So it doesn't. So if anyone goes over to Yardstick, it's Yard, and then Stick is spelled S T I Q. Uh, if you go to Yardstick and you go to the the main page to sign up for a free trial, what stuck out to me is that okay, you have like a bunch of these kind of reviews. That's almost like it reminds me of like a G two or Trust Radius, but more in depth than what you would find from a traditional uh, marketplace review platform. Um, I'm assuming number one, because you were focusing again, like on the buyer side and not as much on the user side. Um, but the other piece too, I'm assuming that, you know, primary buyer personas here are product marketers and competitive Intel, but you don't mention the specific buyer persona by name within that, uh, within that headline. So could you just give us like a little bit of like a, a little bit of background on yardstick who it's for kind of like the, the product itself? Yeah, sure thing. So let me yeah walk through Yardstick and then walk through how it fits in with CBI and, and feel free to interrupt me along the way. So at its core, Yardstick, um, its goal is to provide a rigorous and scalable way to learn what software buyers really think about their vendors. And so we do this in an atypical way as we actually interview thousands of software buyers. And then what we do is we transcribe those conversations and make those available to our customers on Yardstick. And so those conversations um, have sort of, they deliver deep qualitative and quantitative insights into seven main topics. And there's a bunch of sub questions, but there's, you know, what drove your evaluation? What were your decision criteria? Uh, what alternatives did you consider? Uh, why'd you ultimately select the vendor you chose? What was your pricing? Uh, what, and then sort of post-purchase, there's questions around the quality of the deployment, the timing, the support. And then we conclude with sort of overall satisfaction. And if you have to make a decision to renew, you know, where, where is your head at right now? Um, and so in that there's, you know, this very sort of chunky informative transcript and there's lots of structured data, you know, baked within it that we can extract. So things like pricing, when you made the decision, your CSAT, your intent to renew. So that's where the generative AI kind of capabilities do come in and, and make uh, it easier to understand these documents. Um, the customers of Yardstick are pretty varied and there's sort of three main ones, right? I would say um, uh, there's sort of the investment corp dev uh, ecosystem. So this would be your VCs, growth and private equity investors, your corporate M&A teams, and they're using it for due diligence or to understand, um, you know, just to understand the market landscape if they're thinking about a market. Um, we also have hedge funds, which wasn't a market we've traditionally sold into, but they are now using it because a lot of times they view 
competitors of some public company that they hold to be often private technology companies. And so they're trying to understand kind of the risks to a public company holding in their portfolio uh, that way. So you have this sort of investor corp dev group. Then we have technology buyers and procurement teams. So these will be generally folks from Fortune 500 companies who are you know, evaluating a company or a set of technology companies as part of a purchase decision. Uh, and so they're trying to understand what their peers, you know, think of a software, you know, pricing, evaluation criteria, all that other stuff I named earlier, uh, so that they can make a more informed decision about a, pot a potential technology vendor. And then the third group, uh, which I think is probably a lot of the audience of, of, uh, of, of your podcast is the software vendors themselves. And so this will be your product, your marketing, your enablement, um, you know, in certain, in bigger orgs, uh, dedicated CI teams, competitive Intel teams. Um, and they'll use the transcripts to understand customer perceptions of their product and competitors. They'll understand pricing. They'll get insights into why they win and lose deals, uh, you know, use uh, to inform their product roadmap or refine their positioning to win more deals and retain existing customers. So it's, it's pretty varied. It's at the, at the core, it's this library of transcripts. And then we can also do interviews on their behalf um, that they all tap into. But, you know, we see those three groups using them in similar but slightly different ways, given they all have sort of different end purposes. So does that, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It kind of, um, there's a, a saying within competitive intel um, to stay competitor aware, but customer obsessed. And I feel like Yardstick really helps maintain that focus because again, it does inform you about how people feel about your competitors, but it's also, again, you know, it's focused on the customer's words, like their point of view. And I feel like that's solving for a lot of issues that have plagued competitive Intel traditionally and where people are mostly just focusing on the competitor, like what are they doing? What are they trying to do? As opposed to what customers are actually perceiving them, like how, how, how they view them. What do you think is wrong with how traditionally companies are approaching competitive Intel? Yeah, it's a, it's a big question. So I think competitive Intel needs, they vary a lot by size and complexity of organization. So you know, I wouldn't say there's a universal way that everyone does or should do it, right? And, you know, even the goals of and who competitive Intel serves can vary quite a bit, right? And so, you know, what a Fortune 500 company with multiple products and business units that's sort of globally distributed, you know, does to inform executive leadership, you know, should be and is very different than what, let's say, a Series B startup whose primary customer for competitive Intel is, let's call it the go-to-market organization, right? I think that I will say the one universal, while the tactics and needs might vary based on org and maturity and other things, um, there's some commonality in terms of, I think, the opportunities that we see. And what I'd argue is that mo in most organizations, competitive intel tends to resemble astrology um, more than something that's actually empirically driven and, and like an empirically driven structured discipline. Um, you know, it's driven by feelings, not facts. And so um, there's this great quote by uh, Peter Drucker, you know, and he says something to the effect of like, tell me what you value and I'll, I'll, I might believe you, but show me your calendar and your bank statement and I'll tell you what you really believe. And so I think that's the thing here is that where a competitor allocates their team's time and money in terms of the products they choose to build, how they're going to market, who they're partnering with, even what vendors they're buying, uh, you know, the investments and acquisitions they're making, 
like those are the facts, those are the truth. And so those are like what actually provide the best insight into where your competitors are going and, you know, how you might better win deals or improve positioning or refine your roadmap, you know, retain customers, et cetera. Um, and so I think like often it's just, there's just too much feelings. Like it's this very intuition led effort. And I think that undermines the credibility of competitive Intel because it's sort of like, Hey, we read this thing and we believe this is going on when, you know, if you actually saw, sort of follow the breadcrumbs and all of this data, there's a, there's an immense amount of facts now that companies leave out there um, that, you know, some of it is not sort of publicly available. Like, you know, they might, it might be in a yardstick transcript, but, um, but it's out there uh, for the taking. And then you can sort of move to this more empirically driven process. So that's what, that's what we've observed. I think like we thankfully work with a lot of kind of progressive, I would say kind of, uh, you know, uh, fact-based uh, CI orgs. And, and, you know, I think they, they're, they're seeing the merits of, of moving from, you know, this fully intuition-led process to one that relies more on, uh, more on data. This episode of the Healthy Competition Podcast is brought to you by the Healthy Competition Community. Whoa, can you believe that? The Healthy Competition Community is where product marketers, competitive intel practitioners, and other go-to-market pros share best practices and act as a sounding board for questions that Google can't answer. Over a thousand messages are exchanged every month, despite there being less than a hundred members in the community. Now, I'm a firm believer in prioritizing high quality topics of conversation and building authentic connections over member count numbers. So this piece is super important to me. But with that being said, if you listen to this podcast, then you'll probably love being in the community. So join today at healthycompetition.co. That's healthycompetition.co. Now back to the episode. And I, I've heard you mention how important it is to have a really high degree of confidence that something is going to work before you invest a lot into into its development. And so I'm assuming with Yardstick, you got a lot of initial traction on this kind of concept of bringing more reviews, perspectives from buyers into a specific platform. But I'd love to hear like, why put that as a separate product as opposed to continuing to double down on CD insights? Like, I'm just trying to understand, you know, your strategy for both products and how they kind of complement each other. Do you see them yeah. continuing to kind of diverge and go into kind of different directions or continue to complement each other as like CD insights, the bigger platform, Yardstick, the smaller one that leans into CD insights? How are you thinking about that? Yeah, so they they integrate with each other kind of fully, right? So you could buy Yardstick separately, but if you want to have access to sort of the full range of data, which is the machine learning driven data, the company submitted data, and the voice of customer data, you can buy that all together. Um, Yardstick emerged, I think, for two reasons, both of which ultimately we got from customers, right? So I'll start with sort of CB Insights. Um, you know, so our our goal sort of at the highest level kind of is to, is to help the technology economy move faster. And so let me define that term because it's probably, a, it's a little bit, um, maybe a little unclear. You know, the technology economy is like, it, like any economic system has multiple players. And so on one side, we have what we call the buy side, right? So these are folks like your IT or your procurement teams who buy software. They're your corp dev teams who buy companies, and then there's investors who buy equity in these companies, right? So you got your, your buyers, we'll call them, on one side. On the other side, we have the sell side, which is made up of the technology companies. And then in any sort of ecosystem as varied and complex as technology, 
there's in the middle some set of advisors, right? So it's going to be investment bankers or lawyers or accountants or consultants. And the challenge of that, the tech economy in particular, is that there's just, it's this incredibly opaque economy, right? And so what that means, what that, the, the end result of that is that there's a lack of transparency between both sides. And what that, that extra friction actually makes it harder for both sides to come together, right? And so I'll give you an example of a hospital system that was looking to um, deploy uh, these solutions that use AI to read radiology images, right? And there's nearly a hundred different companies who do that today, right? And so the actual decision by the hospital we worked with, you know, prior to us working with them was, was actually to not make a decision, right? They, they were just like, it's so overwhelming the number of options here that my decision is actually going to be indecision, right? And so, um, and so our thought was, okay, if we can synthesize, analyze, and, and visualize a lot of qualitative and quantitative signals, we can hopefully, you know, reduce some of the opacity of that tech economy. And so that increased transparency, the result of that is reduced friction, and then hopefully you can make quicker and more confident decisions. So with that as preamble, that's where Yardstick fits in, right? We had these two data sets, we had machine learning, we had companies submitted. And then what we heard was, um, when we talked to customers on the buy side, they said, when we make a technology decision, we like to talk to people who've bought the software. So if you're in IT, you want to talk to a peer, your procurement. And if you're at an investment firm, you want to do due diligence, you want to talk to customers. And so when we dug into their process to do so, what we really learned was that it was this really ad hoc process, right? They were like, they were pinging folks in their network, or they were sending random LinkedIn messages saying like, hey, has anybody used fill in the blank? Um, and so it was prone to sort of a high degree of selection bias. And then it just was really clunky and time consuming. And so then we thought, what if we could bring that voice of customer to them in a more efficient and scalable way? And that was the seed then that grew into, into Yardstick. Um, so that was kind of like, I guess you think of it like this anthropological study of how our customers do their work. And then the second thing was we talk to customers all the time. And one of our questions is like kind of who else is in your stack, right, to understand this tech economy. And then we just as a company tend to think about that as sort of share of wallet, right? Like where else are you spending money to understand what's happening happening in technology? And what we learned was that a lot of our customers, especially on the investment and club dev side, were using these outsourced services to facilitate calls with soft, with customers of software companies and decision makers. And then, you know, we dug into that and it was like, oh, you're spending a lot of money here. You don't really love the product. Um, and then we thought we could really focus on software buyers, bring an AI driven approach to it. Um, and, you know, really, it was nice because like building a new behavior is really challenging. So we just saw there's an existing behavior here. We can tap into that. We can just make it better. And so our focus with Yardstick was, you know, how do we build something that we're the only ones out there capable of doing? And so now, you know, CBI and Yardstick is sort of the, you know, the peanut butter and chocolate kind of combination of the two. It's a, it kind of reminds me of, uh, of win-loss programs, too, which, again, will typically be owned by product marketers or competitive intel. Except for it's almost like a more holistic um, win-loss program. And that's th there won't be as much bias that you'll be inherently putting on the people that you're talking to. Again, because you work for company X, you're talking to them about company X. Do you offer any kind of like win-loss kind of extension where it's like, hey, we'll also uh, reach out to more buyers in this space on your behalf type of a thing? 
Yeah. So we do, we don't do win loss analysis, right? Like where you get like a shiny deck that says, you know, here's the bar charts and stuff, right? What we will have folks do is say, Hey, uh, here's 10 customers we recently lost, right? Or we didn't win in the competitive deal. Can you go interview them and just, you know, and we have, we have a really structured interview process. And so we'll go interview them or, you know, here's 10 customers that we have, you know, can you interview them? And just, we want to get a pulse. And what we've actually found is two interesting things. When we talk to existing customers, um, there's often a dichotomy between how happy that customer is, how happy the company perceives that customer is and how happy they actually are. Right. And so, and you, you hit it on the head, which is, you know, people are just inherently where most people are nice. Right. And so when, me as the product marketer, as the founder, depending on the stage of the company, goes and talks to a customer and says like, oh, you know, how satisfied are you? Or what ha- you know, whatever the questions are, there's a little bit of grade inflation that happens there because people don't necessarily want to be critical, right? Because they know that that's going to open up now, you know, that's going to make the conversation longer. It might make it a little uncomfortable, right? Um, not everybody's always good at conducting those interviews. And so, you end up with this sort of grade inflation when a, when a company is interviewing its own customers. And then when a company loses a deal and they try to kind of go back and say, hey, you know, why didn't you pick us? Like, you don't really often get great responses, I would say. You tend to get like these sort of superficial like budget, right? Or, you know, um, we, you know, some other sort of like, you know, but the reality is they had budget. There was something in your offering that they, you didn't, you didn't hit the right note. Right. And like, it's not, that's what you want to really get at. Right. And so by abstracting out the team from doing that one, you save them an immense amount of time. And then two, um, and then two, like we're doing the sourcing, we're doing the vetting of the buyer. You're getting all this time, but now you're getting somebody who like, doesn't feel like they have to sugarcoat anything and they can just say, Hey, here's like what we think. And then we can report back to you across 20 interviews we did for you. Here's your CSAT. Here's the CSAT of the person that they act, the company they actually picked, because maybe you lost the deal and everybody went with, you know, your second, your peer and they're all unhappy. Right. And now you have, you can learn and they're unhappy with them because, you know, it doesn't deal with this particular integration well, or it doesn't do this thing well. And so now you know how to go back to folks with positioning that's just much more strong, much more targeted. So yeah, there's like immense value in these transcripts. Like when we talk to sales leaders, you know, they'll say, show me all of the customers of my competitors. And we don't, we don't say, you know, the CIO at Home Depot, it'll say like, you know, CIO at a fortune 50 company or something. So you don't know exactly who's saying it, but you can go in and look at that transcript and say like, Hey, you know, what's their CSAT? What do they not like about that provider? And then, you know, now the sales team or the enablement team or the product marketing team is really now using that information. So it's a big unlock. It's just, yeah, like the process historically has just been so kind of um, ad hoc. I think we bring a lot to making it just a lot more scalable and, and hopefully objective as well. Love that. What, so with these interviews, and so this will, this will be the last question, and then we can wrap yeah. up. In terms of like just trends that you're seeing, because I've seen in your in your newsletter, you'll do, I don't know if it's like once a month or like how often you'll do this, but you'll do kind of like an analysis or a breakdown of a specific industry. 
and you'll say like, hey, here's like what we're seeing in terms of the reviews from specific buyers on a specific vendor and here are their competitors, like what people are saying. What what are some like just potential disruptions that you feel like are are happening right now via Yardstick? Is anything coming that you could share here? I might not go into specific company names, but I'll give you some themes, right? So, you know, I think, you know, of course, failing to listen to customers is a recipe for disruption, but I think to, to be honest, access to what customers are saying is, um, you know, leads to lots of opportunities. So I'll give you a, a few examples, right? One, there's a space, the email security space, right? So there's vendors like Proofpoint, Abnormal Security. And one of the recurring themes that we hear from customers is they're very worried about the impact generative AI is going to have on uh, phishing, right? So phishing like scams, right? Because their concern is they're going to become more sophisticated and more personalized. And the one thing we hear when we talk to these customers is they don't really feel like they're hearing from vendors about how they're going to deal with that. And so, um, and so they're kind of all waiting to see what vendors are going to do. And so if you're a company in the email security space and you saw those comments, it, it it's like it's this unlock, it's this opportunity as it's clear that customers don't feel like they're that this is being addressed yet. And it might be, and it might just be that you're not, you know, emphasizing that enough. And so from a marketing campaign perspective, there's an opportunity. From a product roadmap perspective, this might be something that gets prioritized if you're not working on it. You know, when your sales or CS talking to customers, this might be something that you want to, you know, make sure that you're enabling your team on so they're ready to speak to this proactively. So I think that's one example in email security, um, you know, there's some sort of industry specific examples, like we work a lot in the insurance sector, right? And we see insurers, you know, they want to move faster and deploy products more quickly. And the consensus, again, from the conversations is that the incumbent sort of software companies that work with insurers don't allow them to do that. And so what that means is there's this opening for these kind of newer, what's called embedded insurance or insurance distribution platforms to kind of build new digital insurance products. And so, you know, companies in the space need to hear these insights to know where they should build. And then the other thing is there's a couple of public company players in this space who appear based on these conversations not to be innovating. And so if you're, uh, you know, the investor in those companies, that becomes another thing to look at. Um, and then two other ones, one's just an overarching trend is SaaS consolidation. Right. And so we're seeing that in a lot of areas, just software consolidation more broadly, right? There's especially right now, there's sort of this CFO kind of procurement pressure on reducing spend. And so in areas like cybersecurity or sales tech, the sales tech stack. Um, and so for like private equity or corp dev or, or corp dev team at a company, you know, this is a trend that you want to be thinking about because that might mean you need to be thinking about what, what else do you need to add to your bundle? Maybe you can build it. Maybe you can buy it. Um, so there's a lot going on there. You know, yeah, I can keep going on, but there's, there's, a yeah, ton yeah, yeah. Of, there's a ton of opportunities, right? Where like customers literally will say, I really wish they were working on this, or I'm really curious about how they're going to deal with this. And like, if you start pulling on that thread, there's like a lot of things you can build off of that, whether it's marketing campaigns or influencing your product roadmap, et cetera. Yeah, no, that, that I totally agree. And that consolidation piece, um, again, with, with with product marketers that I typically talk to or hear from on LinkedIn, stuff like that, it's really popular to talk about how you should never be the all-in-one tool and you should like go the specialty route because it's more specific to people. 
And I hear what you're saying. And I see that more often, like on the actual, like when people are actually buying software, like the consolidation piece really speaks volumes. And it makes complete sense from like the buyer's perspective and maybe not as much on the user perspective, but it's something that I think a lot of people don't think too often about. And, you know, I've had like a a seat to kind of see that firsthand at Zoom Info, now at ClickUp, both kind of play into like this consolidation piece. And so I'm biased from that perspective. But then the other piece that you mentioned too about buy versus build, it's been really cool to see, taking from my own experience, Zoom Info, taking that consolidation piece from the buy perspective, you know, they've gone through multiple acquisitions of smaller kind of specialty tools. But then on the build side, we've seen Gong, especially like with their, they just released a sales engagement tool. And that was a big part of their positioning saying how this is homegrown. We didn't acquire any companies uh, to make this happen. And so if you like this experience of Gong, then you'll probably like this new sales engagement product. And so seeing that space, again, because I have like this inherent bias to it, I have a history with it. I think it's fascinating, even though, you know, I I haven't worked with Zoom Info for a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, to some degree, you know, there's product marketers who say, well, you know, buy the best point solution, right? Like that was the right advice for a point in time, right? Like you kind of need to play the game on the field and the game on the field has shifted, right? And so in 2021 and 2020, it was the business units and the end users making technology decisions. And it was sort of, you know, this YOLO world and it was money wasn't a problem. You could go and buy the best point solution, Right that was the game on the field then now the game on the field is you know cost containment expense reduction and you know the cfo and procurement have um, more influence than they did and so you know to like put your head in the sand and say like oh well uh you know you should buy the best point solution like i can't believe these companies are so stupid they're buying this inferior bundled solution like that's just not the game anymore and so you can sort of cry about that but you're going to lose. Right. And so the reality is like, and, and you know, there's that funny quote, it's like, you know, the, the, the world of software is just like, it just shifts from bundling to unbundling or something to that effect. And so like, we're back in the bundling phase. Right. And so like, that's where the world is. And so I think product roadmap, product developers and engineering teams need to be thinking about that corp dev teams, um, investors need to be thinking about that. You know, if they've got a really great point solution, um, but it's sort of, there's somebody else who's 80% as good at part of a larger suite, like that might be a, that might be tough sledding. And so what do you do with that company, right? Do you start acquiring on your own? Cause maybe building takes too long, but I think there's some like big strategic decisions that companies are going to have to make, especially those point solutions right now. Cause the pressure is, is, is extreme from the CFOs and it doesn't seem like it's going to abate anytime soon. And now this was awesome getting to catch up and learn about CD Insights, Yardstick, what you think about uh, the space. Where can folks follow you if they want to learn more about you or, or your companies? Yeah, so if, uh, if you want to understand what software buyers are doing, go to Yardstick.com and sign up. Um, if you want to get the newsletter that Andy uh, so nicely mentioned, just go to cbinsights.com slash newsletter. And uh, yeah, that, you can follow me at, on Twitter at Asanwall. But, uh, but yeah, go to the company stuff. That's, uh, that's where the juice is. Awesome. Love it. Thanks for All hanging right. out. Appreciate it. Take care. Hey, you made it to the end of the episode. I have one small favor for you now. If you could please rate this podcast five stars wherever you're listening to it, that'd be super helpful for me. 
For Spotify, you can only leave a review on the mobile app, and you can do that on the top of the Healthy Competition podcast profile. And for Apple Podcasts, you have to scroll to the bottom of the show's page and click write a review. Each podcast episode takes about five hours of my time from beginning to end while reviewing it should only take about five seconds of your time. Plus, you'd be making my day. So thank you so much in advance and see you in the next episode.